This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. We know that the uh, that autonomous vehicles are the coming wave in the industry. We also know that despite the wants of many, that electric vehicles will become a uh, more important uh, part of our lives as we move ahead. It also it all means that we are headed for a drastic shift in vehicles and transportation. A new report uh, by The Economist looks at all of these changes. Tom Standage is a deputy editor, head of digital strategy for The Economist, and he joins us to discuss their reporting. Tom, welcome. Hello, good to be here. Thank you. Uh, obviously, this is an unbelievably important area. When you think of all the different tentacles that are kind of linked to uh, to autonomous vehicles, to autonomous driving, to business, uh, to the consumer, I mean, there are. It does. I think sometimes people really have to sit back and look at how significant these areas are right now. I agree. If you look at how big an impact the car had in the 20th century, obviously it changed you know, all sorts of aspects of life which people didn't anticipate at the beginning of the century. They thought it was just a new transport technology, and they thought it was going to be cleaner than, than horses. It was going to fix the problem that there was all this horse manure piling up in cities. Um, and, of course, the car turned out to be far more important than that. It reshaped retailing. You think of things like strip malls and drive throughs It reshaped cities and gave you these sort of new... Um, sprawling suburbs and a new suburban lifestyle and it changed all kinds of aspects of culture we just heard that Beatles song which happens to be my favorite Beatles song in fact um, <laughs> and uh, you know think of all the, the ways in which cars change social life and social interaction in the 20th century and so autonomous cars are going to be just as big a shift I think and we need to not make the mistake that we made with the car of just thinking about them as a transport technology we do need to think about these broader societal effects that they're going to have we should expect them to have just as much of an impact on the other aspects of our lives aside from transport that cars did. Well, one of the the, the lines that you have in the reporting, it, it really touches on how big you think this is going to be. You say that this has the opportunity to be as big or greater than the invention of the smartphone. Yes, I think this is probably a technology that's that's going to change the way people live as much as the smartphone did. And the smartphone, in theory, it was just a telephone you could carry around. And, you know, what's the big deal about that? And, of course, it turned out to be a much bigger change than that. It turned out to be the Internet in our pockets, supercomputers in our pockets that could do all sorts of things and provide a gateway to other things. And the same is true. People look at the, at the, um, at the driverless car and they say, well, it's just like a car, only you don't have a driver, which is like saying that a smartphone is just like a telephone without the wire. It's not. It's a very, very much, you know, bigger shift than that. And it means that, for example, this is a computer on wheels and you can schedule all the, the traffic in a city much more efficiently. Uh, you can you can open up all kinds of incredible new business models using this. You know, you don't just hail a ride, but you say you want your, your shopping in the ride and the car appears to pick you up and it's got the shopping and maybe the dinner that you ordered as well in there. And then it takes you to where you want to go. There's going to be in-car advertising, which I'm sure will be horrible. Uh, I mean, there's, <laughs> just, there's going to be all kinds of 
of, of things that we can't imagine now. And what I'm trying to do with this report is I'm trying to sort of get out ahead of this. And, and there's a lot of focus at the moment on the kind of the very near term impact of this, yeah. you know, which car companies will win and which will lose and who's in an alliance with who. And Uber was suing Waymo, sorry, Waymo was, Waymo was suing Uber. There was this big lawsuit about, you know, who had, who had invented this particular um, scanning technology and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just saying, let's look at the, not the two or three year picture, let's look at the 20 or 30 year picture and what are going to be the big impacts. It doesn't really matter which company wins or loses because whoever wins or loses, this is going to have big societal changes uh, brought along behind it. You know, this, the way that cities work will change, the way that transport work will change, the way that social life works will change, the way that retail works, etc., etc. So I'm really just trying to kind of step back and say, what's the big picture here? And that's why the car and our experience of the car in the 20th century is so useful because we've sort of seen this movie before. We saw what happened with the car. We saw that it was very liberating in some ways, but it also had these big drawbacks that, you know, there are road deaths, there's pollution, there's congestion. And so we need to avoid making the same mistake again. So do you see then, I guess, and again, it may be 20, 30 years down the road, that all the investment that we are seeing now, not only from the auto industry, but from the tech companies as well, will end up paying off whatever that X amount number of years is down the road. Oh, I'm certain it will. Yes. I mean, there are, there are some very obvious benefits uh, that you could get from this, this technology. Right. And the ones that everyone focuses on are, yes, a reduction in accidents and road deaths, um, a reduction in the pollution, and you've got, just, you've got the CO2 emissions of, of, you know, car, of, uh, of petrol and diesel cars. Obviously, if you're using electric cars, you don't get the emissions in the cities. You get them at the power stations instead. Um, and so then the question arises, well, how clean is your grid? But basically, even with today's grid, which is not terribly green, you still come out ahead if you move everybody to electric cars, um, because burning fuel in a big power station is just more efficient than burning it in a small car engine. So you still end up with cleaner air in the cities. You also lose um, a lot of the particulate emissions. So diesels, which we're very keen on in Europe, uh, produce a lot of horrible particles, which are being implicated in more and more uh, nasty medical uh, consequences and so you can you can clean up uh, the air in cities enormously so that's a that's a switch that comes from going to electric vehicles not just autonomous vehicles but the yeah. general assumption is that they will be electric and then the um, the third area is congestion and the amount of time that we waste driving um, so there is a, a lot of optimism that we can actually have less congestion now that may we don't know whether that'll work um, because yeah. if these cars are as cheap and as wonderful as everyone says they are, then everyone's going to want to make a lot more journeys, and then we're going to have traffic again. But there are, when you've got basically computers controlling which cars are going where, you've got ways of trying to um, reduce traffic that you can use. And the main thing is, even if you're sitting in traffic, if you're not driving, you can use that time in more productive ways. So you could be working, you could be you know, watching a movie, you could be sleeping, and that's not an option now if you're driving. One of the areas you also discuss uh, that will obviously change uh, with these uh, dynamics coming into play is car ownership and, and an expectation that people will not need to own their cars as much in the future than they do right now. Exactly. We're already seeing a bit of this with, um, with ride hailing. If you use Uber or you use Lyft, then you, know, you may find that actually you don't need to own a car. Now, this isn't true for everybody, and you know, I'm one of those people that owns a car, but I also use Uber. So right. I've, I've, there are some journeys where I'll just take, you know, I'll take an Uber instead of driving. 
So it started to reduce my dependency on my car, but there are still things I want my car for. But I think what will happen is the price goes down. And essentially, when you, when you take an Uber now, something like 60 or 70% of what you pay is, is paying for the driver. If you don't have a driver there anymore, you can make the price much less. So you know, UBS did a whole load of analysis on this, and they found that the cost per mile on average of traveling in a ride-hailing vehicle like an Uber or Lyft is about $2.50, um, and that's more than owning your own car per mile. So it's about $1.20 per mile to own your own car when you take into account all of the various costs. What they think, though, is that a robo-taxi service, so this is a, it's not a car that can go absolutely everywhere. It'll just operate within a city or within a particular neighborhood or a particular suburb. But um, they think that the cost per mile could fall to about 70 cents a mile. Mm. So that's less than owning a private car. And that means that if you mainly drive in a city and you do, say, 10,000 miles a year, and the cost per mile goes from $1.20 to 70 cents, then you're able to take a robo-taxi to still get all the places you want to go, but you're going to save $5,000 a year. And if that's true, then a lot of people are going to give up owning cars. And UBS's prediction is that urban car ownership will fall by 70% by about 2040. So that means a lot fewer cars sitting on the roads, not, because most cars are only in use 5% of the time. So they're just they're parked mostly. Yeah. Um, and that means all of that space that we're using, cities are kind of big dormitories for cars, if you think about it. We can use that space for something else. And so that starts to have effects on real estate prices and on urban planning and, and so on. So that's the kind of thing where you can see the, the connection between what looks like just like a clever technology, but it starts to have these big ripple effects in other areas. By the way, I can testify to that car sitting uh, dormant with my car sitting at the train station seven hours a day since I commute on the train every day. So you're, you're exactly there right you about go. that. So, so one of the models for self-driving cars is, and this is what Singapore, for example, is talking about doing. But you could imagine other cities doing this, too, is they say we want to use these vehicles as a way of as the, what they call first mile, last mile. So it takes you to the station and then you do the... The, the main bit of your commute on mass transit of some yep. kind, on a train or something. And then maybe at the other end you walk or maybe you get another vehicle at the other end. But what this means you can do, some cities, I mean, I bet the city of Seattle will set up its own robo-taxi service. So they will own vehicles that say City of Seattle on the side, and they'll be able to call them with an app or whatever. Um, and maybe there'll be like roaming agreements between the Uber network and the, you know, this robo-taxi network. Right. But what, what that will mean is they'll be able to integrate it with the public transport. So one of the other things this does is it blurs this distinction. But at the moment, we have this idea of private cars and public transit. And when you start to have cities owning shared autonomous cars, and you can access them like public transport, but they're kind of like going in a, your own car as well, right. then that, that old distinction goes away and you can integrate the two together. And maybe you ask, you know, I would need to get from A to B and it'll say, okay, the car's going to show up outside, go down to get in the car, it's going to take you to the station, then get on this train, then go to here, then another car will meet you and you can start to see all these things fitting together. So then it becomes a better economic model to potentially follow uh, if you're talking about having the city or the state involved in this, uh, and I'm just thinking about the you know the example here in Philadelphia with the mass transit system here uh, that we have that obviously has been well for a lot of people that don't know has been economically challenged for many years now. If you're talking about having a a new component to it that may make it more economically feasible to have both. Well, it may be. It's not both. It is the public transit. So right. a lot of people are looking at this and saying, you know, in right. Europe, we have a lot of cities that were built um, and the public transit was kind of, you know, added much earlier. Right. Retrofitting public transit to big American cities is very expensive. 
and um, and you know you don't add that much capacity. Adding light rail um, to to a city you know costs a lot of money and doesn't really create that much capacity. Right. So a lot of people are looking at this and saying this is a way we could add a form of mass transit without having to buy land, without having to build new infrastructure. But it would go it would it would because you get these transit deserts, parts of cities where there is inadequate public transport and you know owning a car is the only really feasible way of getting around if you get everything right with this model and one of the ways you could do it is you can subsidize rides in areas that don't have adequate public transport by charging more in areas you know in, in city centers or whatever so there's lots of experiments being done like this in fact they're already happening with with ride hailing so there are some cities where the uh, the city government has paid to subsidize um, ride hailing in some neighborhoods uh, in order to make it easier for people to get to and from uh, train stations and things like that. So, yes, it does give you this new range of options for, yeah. for public transit that, you know, beyond just, oh, we're going to add bus routes or we're going to add light rail. Um, you could start to do it in a much more flexible way. And that has the urban planning people very excited. Yeah, and that was going to be one of the other things is, is that you have to do this within the scope of of city planning, which is something that is changing as as we move forward into the next uh, you know fifty to hundred years as well. Yes, yeah, so city planning, I think you know, changes too. One of the things that's happened in American cities, in particular, is that the sort of traditional model that people live in the suburbs and they they commute towards the centre to work isn't true anymore. So it turns out that most people actually commute from one suburb to another, and um, this is not quite the, the, the case in Europe. It's a little a little closer to uh, you know, the old model, but essentially the nature of cities as cities get bigger is changing. And that means building the kind of radial networks of public transport doesn't work anymore. And if you've got them, they don't necessarily give you the kinds of routes that you want anymore. So again, using these much more flexible vehicles um, allows you to adapt to those sort of changes much more easily. And I should point out that um, absolutely fundamental to the economics of all of this is the idea that these vehicles will be shared. So sure. they will they will carry they won't just carry one person they'll carry several people like when you take an Uber pool and you share with other people um, and it may be that a vehicle of say with six to eight people in it uh, will be about you know the most efficient size we don't know and there again we're going to have to do lots of experiments with this in the in the coming years but uh, it may be that those vehicles actually have quite separate kind of um, you know, you may have a vehicle with six seats and they may have six doors so different people can get in and out. and They don't have to talk to each other. And you maybe you get a vehicle that has a screen so you can work or a big kind of like a business class airline seat so you can sleep. I mean, there's, there's going to be all sorts of innovation around the shapes of vehicles. But really central to all of this is that if you share the vehicles, then the economics are much better. And of course, you take vehicles off the road, because if you look at most, uh, you know, rush hours in most cities, you've got vehicles with one person in them and that's right. just very wasteful of the uh, the road space how much do you think uh, electric vehicles will eventually play into this because here in the u.s uh there there have been sales but not and not close to what i think a lot of people that have really vested uh, invested i should say into that uh that type of technology uh, have been hoping to see well, I think this will accelerate the adoption of uh, electric vehicles because for autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles make a lot more sense because they cost less to run per mile. You're not having to buy fuel for them. You have to just recharge them, which is much cheaper per mile. The other thing is electric vehicles have 
far um, less uh, mechanical complexity. So if you look at the drivetrain of a petrol or a diesel vehicle, it typically has about 2,000 moving parts in it. And if you look at the drivetrain of an electric vehicle like a Tesla, it typically has about 20 moving parts. So there's just much less to go wrong, and they require much less servicing, and you can just drive them a lot further without things you know, going wrong. So there is a, an obvious incentive for people building robo-taxis, because these vehicles are going to be, unlike the cars that we have that we mostly don't use, the utilization rate is going to go from 5% of the day to maybe 55 or 60% of the day. Wow. So there's going to be an awful lot more usage um, put on these cars. They're going to be stressed a lot more. Uh, so electricity makes a, a great deal of sense. The other thing is that, you know, I, I just bought a new car and I looked at the electric cars and, you know, they're still, there are still drawbacks to buying an electric car. They don't have the range. I don't have right. a place I can charge it. I don't have off-street parking. You know, they're more expensive. And so, so I ended up just buying a petrol car. Um, but if I give up my car, then I'm going to give up a petrol car in exchange for an electric robo-taxi. And it's not all of those problems to do with where it parks at night and how you recharge it and all the rest of it are someone else's problem. So if you get this move away from car ownership towards robo-taxis and those robo-taxis are electric, then you've got part of this migration away from petrol to electricity kind of happening automatically. Any side effects that you see that, that need to be watched out for as, as we move forward with this? Well, yes. I mean, this is really what I'm, what I'm trying to get at. So the, the ones that people worry about, they worry about cybersecurity. So this is a computer on wheels and won't people break into it and kind of make it crash into people and, uh, and so on. And obviously, this is something that, you know, does need to be looked at. You need to secure all the components in a car. But what's happening in these cars, I mean, cars have multiple redundant safety systems and, you, you know, you're constantly looking to see if, if, if something's failed. And so a cyber attack on a car would look an awful lot like one of those systems failing. So I think... Those two problems could sort of be solved together. If you build these cars in a way that's safe mechanically, then you may also get a fair amount of sort of cybersecurity part of it too. Another thing people worry about is the sort of trolley problem, uh, the sort of ethical question. You know, the car's going down the road and, and then some children step into the road and if it swerves to avoid them, it will kill an old woman and how will the car decide? And again, I don't think this is a, a terribly big problem because this is a very unrealistic scenario. You know, that's never happened to me as a driver and these vehicles will have much, much faster reactions action times than humans. So I think um, those sorts of um, arguments about the drawbacks of these cars are distracting us from the rather bigger problems and the rather bigger drawbacks that, that really, really are there. So the first one is privacy. These vehicles are going to know everywhere you've been and they're going to know a great deal about your lifestyle. This is already true now. So in London, we have number plate recognition systems all over the city. And, you know, if I drive my car around, then the chances are I've driven past a camera and what I'm doing has been recorded. Um, but if you look at um, you know, the implications of these, these vehicles, where they're going to have cameras in them that record what the people inside them do, they're going to have cameras around them so that they don't crash. And if they do crash, that they, they've got evidence of what happened. And that means that all of these cars collectively are going to be recording everything that they see. It's going to be like a kind of giant roving um, you know, CCTV system in the city. And that's going to be good from a safety point of view, but it's going to mean it's going to be very difficult to go out in public without right. that being recorded, which some people will, will worry about. Another example is um, Uber did an analysis in 2012 where they figured out by uh, analyzing the patterns of their riders, um, which rides were people coming back from one night stands. 
And they published this blog post about it and thought, isn't this funny? And everyone went nuts and said, no, this won't do. This is invading people's privacy. Um, and this is going to be like that only more so because all of your, of your rides, if you don't own a car, are going to be on these sorts of vehicles. So you're going to be giving up a lot of privacy. So there's a, there's a sort of, um, you know, there's a, a gradual uh, question about the extent to which we can do things privately, which lots of technologies raise, but there's, there's part of that. And then the other one is this question of the extent to which governments can use these vehicles to change um, people's behavior for social control. Now, there are some kinds of social control that we approve of, if you like. Um, so, you know, encouraging people to use public transport instead of cars. Or, right. Yeah. You know, en encouraging people to, to travel at times of day if they don't have to make the, the um, journey now and they can travel later. That's great. So we raise the price now. We do surge pricing. And then people who can travel later, travel later. That's a kind of, you know, coercion, which is to... If, if it's not really important that you travel now, you travel later. But imagine what a government, an authoritarian government, could do with this. They could say, people in this neighborhood are not allowed to travel to that neighborhood, or people who, who are, you know, over here aren't allowed to go over there. And this sounds theoretical, but, you know, the Chinese government is already doing this. They have this thing called the social credit system, where they give you a score based on how good a citizen you're being. And if you do something that they don't approve of, like criticize the government on social networks, they take away some of your privileges. So you, you oh, may not geez. be able to fly on internal flights, or you may be, not be able to use trains or whatever. And these vehicles potentially would give you a lever to control the way people get around, to discriminate against particular groups and so on. So we really have to think about the political implications of this. And that's, that's really the main point I'm trying to make right. with this report, that that has been overlooked. Tom, thanks for joining us today. We wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.